If you have your Bibles, let's turn to uh, John chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 48. I knew that would get everybody to sit in their seats as soon as I give the scripture introduction. John chapter 8, starting at verse 48. Last time I spoke, we ended at verse 47. In our text tonight, we're going to see something. We're going to see the hostility of the Jews towards Jesus growing fiercer. Their anger is going to get to a boiling point. And at the beginning of chapter 7, the Jews' debate with Jesus was somewhat civil. However, the more Jesus challenged them and shot down their false security, the more angry they got. As a matter of fact, their anger reached a point at the end of chapter 8, which we're going to look at tonight. It reached a point where they picked up stones to kill him because Jesus claimed to be divine. Jesus pushed them to this point. And you might say, why would Jesus push them to this point? It was love. It was actually love. It was love why Jesus shattered a person's false hope so that the self-righteous person could see what they really need, which is a Savior, Jesus Christ. And if they would come to that conclusion and abandon their false securities, whether it is a heritage or good works, Jesus said they'll never see death. Let's read John chapter 8. Verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, God. We thank you, God, that you are the eternal I am. Help us to understand this in a greater way. Even for those of us who believe it and know it, help us to understand it in a greater way. And help us to keep your word, God, so we never see death. And God, at the end of this sermon, help us all say together, may God be glorified in Jesus' name. I'm going to start off with a story. A man fell off a cliff, but managed to grab a tree limb on the way down. The the following conversation ensued. Is anyone up there? 
I am here. I am the Lord. Do you believe me? Yes, Lord, I believe. I really believe, but I can't hang on much longer. That's all right. If you really believe, you have nothing to worry about. I will save you. Just let go of the branch. A moment of pause. Then, is anyone else up there? I don't know how many of you have ever heard that story before. I've heard that story many times growing up as a Christian. And it's a humorous story, but it makes a very serious point. There are many like... Like the Jewish leaders in our text tonight, who claim to know God and that God is truly their father. However, they will not let go of their false religious security and put their full trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And here's the proposition I want to set before you all tonight. If we believe Jesus is is divine and keep his word, we will never see eternal death. But if we reject his claim as divine and his word, we will see eternal death. Now you might be saying, well, I'm a Christian and I believe this. But we're going to find out, can Christians oppose Jesus? Can Christians violate his word? We're going to find that out. And the last time I spoke on John, John, we looked at chapter chapter 8, verses 37 to 47, and the Jewish leaders... Hard-hearted, rebellious rejection of Christ was actually their own hope of salvation. In chapter 8, there's an increasing, increasingly hostility towards Jesus. We see that. If you remember, Jesus in verse 12 said to the crowd, I am the light of the world, implying that his hearers were in darkness without him. And that statement ruffled the feathers of the Jewish leaders. I mean, they really got angry at him. And they challenged Jesus' authority. And the more they challenged Jesus concerning his person and work, the more Jesus shed light on their wickedness. Just like Jesus to do that. They challenged his witness. They challenged his origin. They challenged him about their freedom. They challenged his judgment. They challenged his relationship to their father. And Jesus responds by giving them a reality check throughout the chapter. He says, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. You know neither me nor my father. You will die in your sins if you don't believe I am. Where I am going, you cannot come. You are from above. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He told them implicitly that they were slaves of sin and that they were not free as they thought they were. And the last time I spoke, Jesus tells them the ultimate, that their father is not God, but their father is the devil. And that was a stinging rebuke to the Jewish pride. I mean, that was, that really pushed them over the top. Anyway, the cosmic war on truth started in the garden and it's brought to a climax tonight in this text and by the way the the war on truth started in the garden and will continue until Christ returns we're all in a cosmic war on truth and there are three points I will attempt to make from our text tonight and I want you to get this and listen First one is opposition of Jesus. The opposition of Jesus we're going to look at. The second one is the proposition of Jesus. And the third one is the declaration of Jesus. Let's look at our first point, the opposition of Jesus. Those who oppose Jesus will see death. Let's read verses 48 to 50 and then verses 53 to 55. The Jews answered him, "Are are we not 
right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. Verses 53 through 55. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And people that oppose Jesus ultimately are dishonoring God. And the argument here in this text tonight goes from bad to worse. Jesus told him in the previous verses, your father is the devil. And he also told them that the reason why you do not hear the words of God is because, simply, you're not of God. And that infuriated them. Uh, it got them so mad, they began to call them names like, you're a Samaritan, you're, you have a demon. Now, these are the harshest and most radical words dishonoring the Savior. First of all, to call a Jew a Samaritan was extremely insulting in that culture in that day. The New Manners and Custom of the Bible by James Freeman and Harold Chadwick says, The Jews made the name Samaritan a synonym for everything that was vile and contemptible. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. It was a mutual hatred between both of them. And if you remember when I spoke on the woman of the well in chapter 4, I gave the history of the Samaritans um, and how... This hatred of the Jews evolved. And I'll abbreviate that historical account for the sake of clarity. The Samaritans originally were identified with the Israelites of the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians conquered Israel and exiled them to Assyria, most of the Israelites, a remnant of Israel, remained in the land. Okay, so Assyria conquered uh, Israel and Samaria and brought them to Assyria. And then Assyria captives from distant places also settled there. So the Assyrians captured others from foreign lands and brought them into Samaria. Now there's a remnant in Samaria. And now you have these others from distant lands there with them. So this led to intermarriage of some of the Jews with the Gentiles, which led to the worship of foreign gods. And these new breeds of people were called the Samaritans. That's how they got the name Samaritans. Um, And they were despised by the Jews. I mean, the Jews actually really hated them. Uh, They were considered half-breed heretics. As a matter of fact, Ezra and Nehemiah would not not lead or or not let the Samaritans share in the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. That's how much they hated them. So to say the least, for a Jew in the first century to be called a Samaritan was as insulting as could be. So, and this is what they were calling Jesus. In essence, they were saying to Jesus, you're a false teacher. Because the Samaritans didn't agree with their interpretation of the law. And that he was a traitor because the Samaritans and Israel were bitter enemies. By calling Jesus a Samaritan, they were dishonoring him. Not only did they call Jesus a Samaritan, but they also said, you're demon possessed. Now, this was not only the time the Jewish leaders called Jesus demon-possessed. We read this in all three of the Gospels, all the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus 
consider this kind of name-calling serious and unforgivable. It was blasphemous. Jesus did what he did and said what he said by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to attribute his words and works to Satan would mean to forfeit forgiveness forever. So what they said about Jesus was very serious. And that's how a hard heart that rejects Jesus can get. Dr. John MacArthur, when he was preaching on this text, tells a story about the hardness of a heart that rejects Jesus Christ. He said, in Hollywood, there was a large synagogue and a very famous rabbi. When I was in seminary, I went to see that rabbi because I wanted to confront him with the claims of Christ. I wanted to talk to him about Judaism and Christianity. Well, I was, you know, inexperienced and very much in those days. And I thought I could just go in and have a sensible conversation with him and present to him the claims of Christ. And I went there, walked into his little office where he had all of his books. And he was there studying and his wife ushered me in there. And he was sitting behind the desk and he greeted me and I greeted him. And he sat down and I sat down and we began to talk about the Torah and began to talk about Jewish history, and it was going wonderfully. And then I said, well, you know, Jesus Christ said, and that was as far as I got. He flew out of the chair, both fists hit the desk, where everything went whoosh, just like that. He stood up, and with the fury in his eyes, he said at the top of his voice, don't you ever mention that name in my presence, as loud as he could. That's bitterness. Jesus Christ, is ab- Jesus Christ absolutely nauseated him, repulsed him. And there you have a little indication of what was going on in the minds of these Pharisees who had been devastated by Jesus Christ. And I had a similar experience. When I was working about 30 years ago, I was driving the comp- same company I'm working for now, and I was in New Jersey, and I was going to this one particular stop that I went to every morning and every afternoon. I would make deliveries in the morning and make pickups in the afternoon. And this one particular morning, I was dropping off the freight, and I went in, and what I always do, I knew that everybody in the mailroom, I was talking to them about Jesus, like I usually made a habit of doing. And this one particular morning, there was this young man there, and he just got out of the Army or the Air Force or one of the armed forces, and he was sitting there listening to me talk about Jesus. And I was talking and talking and talking, and I turned around to him and I said, right? Whatever I was saying, I was, wanted him to agree with me. And like this Jewish rabbi, he jumped up and at the top of his lungs, he started screaming at me. His veins were popping out of his neck. He was turning beet red and he was screaming. And I wasn't, I don't remember being afraid. I remember being amazed and, and like shocked. Some people are so nauseated and repulsed by Jesus, they explode on the impact of anything that has to do with Jesus, the Savior. So don't don't be uh, surprised if that happens to you when you talk about Jesus. At the same time, don't let it stop you from talking about Jesus. Because Jesus said, happy are those who are persecuted for his namesake. Now, of course, not everyone explodes when you talk about Jesus. Obviously, not everybody explodes. Some people say, oh, that's so nice. I'm glad you're so happy. You know, and in the meantime, they're still rejecting Christ, right? 
However, rejecting the sun in any way, whether it's explosively or politely, has the same result, which is you dishonor God and you will not see life. The Jews opposed Jesus and forfeited their one and only hope of seeing life and not seeing death, as well as so many today. And because they oppose and reject Jesus, ultimately, who are they rejecting? God. Because Jesus is God. They're rejecting the Father. They're rejecting the Son. They're rejecting the Holy Spirit. They're rejecting God. And they're dishonoring God. And when the Jews called Jesus a Samaritan and that he had a demon, they were saying that to God. When the Jews told Jesus... Are we right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They were saying that to God. They were looking at God in his face and saying that to God. Jesus did not criticize back, but calmly answers his opponent. I do not have a demon. And Peter tells us in his first epistle, 1 Peter 2.23, do we have that up there? He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And let Christ's attitude be an example to all Christians not to revile in return when people say hurtful things to us, but continue to trust in God. Because you're going to get persecuted. You're going to get false accusations against you and so on and so forth. Jesus plainly states the truth. I do not have a demon. In fact, the opposite is true. I honor my father. A demon-possessed man cannot possibly honor God. Jesus honored God, but his hearers dishonored God because they refused to listen to his son, whom the father himself honors. They accused Jesus of claiming to be greater than their father, who they thought their father was, Abraham, which they were right. Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Isaac. He's greater than Jacob. He's greater than all the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Joseph. He's greater than all the apostles. He is greater. So they were right, except they didn't mean it in that way. Yet his glory and honor came from who? He didn't glorify himself. His glory and honor came from the Father. Listen to verse 50 and 54 again. Verse 50. I'll read it anyway. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And then verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So Jesus truly honored the father and the father truly honored his son. The Jewish leaders saw glory and honor from who? From each other. However, what others think is not really important. God's approval is everything. He is the judge. Jesus earnestly desired to honor and glorify his father, and his father and glorified and honored him. Jesus said in John 17, verses 4 and 5, right before his crucifixion, he said, I glorified you on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before, with you before the world existed. From all eternity, there was a mutual giving of honor within the Trinity, within that interpersonal relationship within the Trinity. You see, Jesus was not promoting himself. He knew self-glory, self-honor would be of no value independent of the glory of God, the Father. He insisted that the Father is the one who glorifies him. We read in John 5, 22 and 23. John 5, 22 and 23. He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may what? Honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent them. God the Father is the one who honors the Son. The one the Jews claim to be their Father. If God were really their Father, they would be honoring the Son. But because they don't honor the Son... They prove that Satan is their father and God. The bottom line is this. Jesus inherently knows the father, but they did not know the father because they did not honor him. You know, you don't honor, I, I said this through these through chapters 6, 7, and 8. You don't honor the son. You cannot possibly be honoring the father. They never came to an experiential knowledge of God. If Jesus were to deny he knew the father, he would be a liar like they were. They lied because in reality, what? They didn't know God at all. Jesus knows God and keeps his word. He does whatever his father asks. Those who oppose Jesus are opposing God and thus dishonoring God and will not see life. Those who honor the son are honoring God and will see life. Years ago, I was ministering in a contemporary Christian band. And one of the members of the group came over to me and introduced me to this young man who claimed to be a Christian. And we, we were discussing the things that pertain to Christianity, and it was we were having a wonderful conversation, and we were talking and talking, and I happened to mention, happened to mention, Jesus is God. And that's where the rubber met the road. He said to me, I, I don't believe that. I have trouble believing that. And our discussion took a turn from a pleasant, respectful agreement to an unpleasant, yet still respectful disagreement. And he was not a Christian. As a matter of fact, he was a Jehovah Witness. He did not honor the Son as God the Son. There are so many people in religions, in religious circles, that either acknowledge Jesus or respect him as a great teacher, but deny his person and work. There are Buddhists, Hindus, who don't believe in Jesus at all. Even though they claim some kind of encounter with God, in reality, they don't know him at all. You have Confucianism, who doesn't believe in a personal God, but believes in a force called Teo, or the great ultimate. As a matter of fact, you have Islam, who acknowledges Jesus. As a matter of fact, in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned 97 times, and, G- and I'm sorry, Jesus is mentioned 97 times, and Muhammad is mentioned 25 times. But they deny Christ's divinity and make him like Moses or one of the other prophets that they mention in the Quran. And you have the New Age, was just a sloppy mess of different religions put together, creating the same old lies that started in the garden. You can be like God. Judaism 
is the oldest revealed religion. It believes in the one God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Judaism is even based on the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that we, we always look at. However, they deny Jesus. Not that he existed, but that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Then you have so-called Christian religions, like Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Christian Scientism, Unitarian Universalists. They all, all deny Christ's divinity. If you don't think that's important, wait till we come to the end of this chapter. It is extremely important. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe that he is God. Then you have ungodly men, as the epistle Jude says, they have crept into the church unnoticed. And Brian was speaking about that when he was going through the book of Colossians. And here is where it gets confusing for many Christians in the church because of their ignorance of scripture. We have many who share the pulpits with those who deny Christ's divinity. The word of faith movement is one of them, who I believe has many destructive heretical teachings. They strip Jesus of his divinity and elevate man to be a God. They say enough truth to entice people into their web of destruction. Many of their teachers deny Jesus being God. And yet, many genuine believers invite these godly, ungodly people into their pulpits, which I find astounding. They don't honor the Father because they are not rightfully honoring the Son. Many will come to Jesus on that day and say, Lord, Lord, have I not done all these great miracles in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Because really, they never knew him. So he, he never knew them. They did not honor the Son. Just because someone talks about Jesus does not mean they are honoring Jesus. If they give a false description of him, they are not honoring him. Even if they give a correct description of him, but they are not obeying him, they are not honoring him. When I was born again in the 70s, the term born again, how many of you were born again in the 70s? Yeah. Okay, we have just two, three. Well, when I was born again in the 70s, the term born again, even in the 80s, was very popular. You know, everybody was born again. I remember uh, there was one woman who was a stripper. She said, I'm, st- I'm a born again stripper. <laughs> really? I don't know. Anybody remember that? It was just me. You know, she, she supposedly came to faith in Christ and said she's going to use her talent, you know, to strip for Jesus Christ. So it was very popular. And many during that time, because God was doing something in the 70s and 80s, and I was part of that. Um, I think in the early 70s, you had, you had the great um, a revival in California, Calvary Chapel. They sprung up all over the place. Um, so there was, God was doing great things. I mean, and with great revivals, of course, always, there's always heretical teachings that come in, too, with that. Um, so many had come to faith in Christ, but many jumped on the bandwagon that were not genuine believers. So many claimed to be born again, and yet their lives were not radically changed. There was no repentance. There was no change in their thinking. To say I'm born again, but there is no change in the heart, then there is no honoring of Christ. If we are not honoring the Son, whether implicitly or explicitly, we are not honoring the Father, and we will not see life. It it is possible to claim to know Jesus 
and still oppose him. Both Isaiah and Jesus, speaking of Judaism of their day, but I believe it applies to all people, said, This this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But in our text tonight, the Jews were clearly opposing Jesus. And in the midst of opposition, please hear this, in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this uh, uh, condescending of Jesus, in the midst of this opposition, Jesus gives a proposition of hope, which is our second point, the proposition of, by Jesus. So we see them opposing him, and now we're going to see Jesus in the midst of this giving them a proposition. Those who keep Christ's word will never see death. Verse 51, verses 51 and 52. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, say it with me. You will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Jesus had rejection and opposition all around him. But still, graciously offers eternal life. And I just love what the scripture says in Romans. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While they were opposing Christ to his face, rejecting the divine son of God, Jesus says, if you keep my word, you'll never taste death. God is so gracious. If that was me, I would have said, I am poof, you were. That's the way the human heart, but God is so gracious. There is one of two things we can do. We can either keep his word and never see death or reject his word and see death. This is the most important thing we can and need to do in life. That's why Jesus prefaced his statement with truly, truly. Okay? This is a common phrase used throughout John's gospel. John says it a lot, truly, truly, which introduces a statement of major importance. In other words, we need to listen. So if you're sleeping, wake up. I'll say what I have to say, then you can go back to sleep. (laughs) Truly, truly. Jesus is solemnly telling the Jews that if they would keep his word They will not see death. He didn't want them to miss that. Nor does he want us to miss that. What exactly does Jesus mean by keep his word and not see death? Well, first of all, in order not to see death, we must keep his word. To keep his word simply means, as Dr. D.A. Carson says, listen, he believes it, he cleaves to it, he obeys it, and he lives by it. Do you see the progression? You believe it, you hear it, you believe it, you cleave to it in your heart, you obey it, and you live your life by it. That's what it means to keep his word. And whoever keeps his word, that's the one who is a true child of God, that's the one who is truly in his kingdom, that's the one who is a true disciple of Christ. We don't just hear it, we live by it. In the epistle of James, he tells us in chapter 1, starting at, verses 20, starting at verse 22. Can we put that up there, James? 
But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, many hear God's word, but only a few keep it. A few truly believe it, cleave to it, obey it, and live by it in faith and love. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus said to the same crowd, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. True believers in Jesus, true believers in Jesus, don't just hear the word, but live in the word. How do you hear the word and keep it if you're not living in it? Now listen, Brian is up here painfully preaching the word every Sunday. We do Bible study in the back, we do a uh, woman's uh, fellowship and Bible study. We do a Monday night's men's Bible study. We have a prayer meeting. That's good. But that should just do one thing to you. It should whet your appetite. You should be daily in the word. Soaking in it. Uh, renewing your mind daily. That's what it means to keep it. That's how you will continue in the word. And those who keep his word will never see death. Obviously, this is not speaking about physical death because we all die sooner than later. Um, this is speaking about, about never experiencing eternal separation from God. And that comforts my heart to no end. Amen. John Gill, the English Baptist pastor, who was also a biblical scholar and a theologian, commenting on this verse, he will never see death, said this. The second death... Eternal death, which is an everlasting separation of a man's body and soul from God. This death shall have no power on such a person. He shall never be hurt by it. And though he dies a corporal death, that shall not be a curse, a penal evil to him. Nor shall he always lie under the power of it. But shall rise again and live in soul and body forever with the Lord. Isn't that comforting? Is that comforting? In other words, the person who loves and obeys God's word, the second death being separated from God eternally, will have no power over the true believer of God. As a matter of fact, the true believer should actually welcome physical death. Because the second death being cast into hell and forever separated from God, they will never experience. However, to reject his word, a person will experience separation from God eternally. Eternally. And at this point in our text tonight, the Jews rejected Jesus' offer to believe in his word and never see death. They heard Jesus' word in strictly a physical, literal and physical sense. And they sharply answered back. They said, and we can almost hear the venom uh, screaming through the pages of scriptures. Now we know you have a demon. How dare you say we will never see death if we keep your word? Who do you think you are? Abraham and the prophets died. And you say if anyone keeps your word, they will never see death. You must think you're greater than your father, Abraham. And I have news for them. Jesus is not only greater than Abraham, he's infinitely greater than Abraham. They were so flustered and aggravated with Jesus that they said these horrible things to him in verse 54. Jesus calmly repeats 
what he said in verse 50, that he was not seeking his own glory and honor, but his father's, which we looked at a little while ago. And I still find it amazing, maybe I shouldn't, but I do, that Jesus would offer eternal life to those who have been mockingly rejecting his gospel and dishonoring him. But I really shouldn't because Christians experience the same, even though it may not be as severe as Christ. And I'm always humbled and encouraged when I read Voice of the Martyr monthly issue. As I was reading the latest issue, the February issue, um, in the front page, the president always gives a little um, presentation. And I was humbled once again. He said this. He said, I recently visited India to meet with some frontline workers, most of who are Christian converts from Hinduism. One day we had lunch with a group of pastors who had been arrested and fined for their evangelistic activities. They are also harassed by fellow villagers, but they refuse to let disruptions prevent them from sharing the gospel. Telling Hindus and Muslims about eternal salvation through Jesus Christ is far more important to them than the temporal inconveniences of court fines and the sting of harsh words. Wow. Wow. We get, I mean, I don't know, maybe I can't speak for you. Somebody says a little unkind word to me. I I put my tail between my legs and I, I get in a fetal position and get under the covers. You know, I mean, we're so fragile in America. Cowards. Cowards, yeah. Well said. We could be cowards. God help us to be the true New Testament church like these churches in India. God help sonship. God help us to be like a New Testament church that, that in these other countries that are really suffering. They don't, they don't care. They lose everything. In the middle of opposition like Christ was, they'll give the gospel out because they love people. You know why? Because they love they understand and know they're never going to see death. God. They have passed from death to life. They love not their own lives even unto death. They don't fear men who could only kill the body, but they fear God who can, both, who can throw both body and soul into hell. And who gave them these promises? Jesus gave them these promises. Jesus told them, you'll never see death if you keep my word. You'll pass from death to life. Don't love your own lives even unto death. They don't fear man who can only kill the body, but they fear God who can throw both body and soul into hell. That's who gave them the promises. God gave them the promises, and only God can give such promises. And Jesus Christ is God, which brings us to the third and final point of our text, the declaration by Jesus. It is not acceptable to believe anything less than Jesus is the eternal I am, the old of the old and the New Testament. Verses 56 to 59. Let's read that. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not... Yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Once again, the Jews prided themselves on being physical descendants of Abraham. And and the one they claimed to be their spiritual father, Abraham, but in reality was not, was extremely joyful at seeing Christ's day. Exactly how Abraham saw Christ's day is not clear. However, there are excellent ideas of how we saw Jesus' day. The, reader, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that, and uh, you don't have to turn to this, that the Old Testament saints, which of course includes Abraham, 
It says they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Abraham saw Christ day by faith, believing what God had promised him when he told him in Genesis 12, 1-3, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, which involved God's future provision of redemption. Also very important to mention, another way Abraham, or another way Abraham saw Christ day was through his son Isaac. What a great typology. Almost all the commentators mention this. And I like what Dr. Warren Wisby says. He says, certainly Abraham saw the birth of the Messiah in the miraculous birth of his own son, Isaac. He certainly saw Calvary when he offered Isaac to God. Um, and in the, in the marriage of Isaac, Abraham could see a picture of the marriage of the Lamb. And I think that says it well, that Abraham saw Christ's day through his son Isaac's life. And I think, I, I personally think that's the best explanation. A few commentators think Abraham actually saw Jesus' day because he died and in heaven he could actually see Christ's day. Most commentators don't think that's accurate. But whether he actually saw Christ's day when he went to heaven or by faith, his son Isaac, uh, the point is the same. He saw it and he rejoiced greatly. On the contrary, the Jews had Jesus right in front of him. Right in front of them. With all the miracles and the words from God. And they weren't joyful. They were angry. The complete opposite. They saw Jesus' day. Not by faith. But by sight. And they were very angry. When I came to faith in Christ. And began to understand what Jesus did for me. How he lived this perfect life for me. How he died for me rose again when my wine went back 2,000 years ago by way of the scriptures and read about Jesus' life. You know what I did? I rejoiced. I mean, I was, I, I, I said with the psalmist, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And my joy, and in my joy, I started telling people who many of them didn't exactly feel the same joy I was feeling. Matter of fact, they got pretty angry with me. Listen, if they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you. Okay, If the Jews were angry at Jesus' day, many will be angry when we share the gospel with them. Anyway, the Jews were outraged that Jesus made the claim that Abraham saw his day when he was not yet even 50 years old. Which in Jewish thought was the age of man's prime and completed life. However, notice they twisted, they twisted Jesus' words. Jesus did not say... He had seen Abraham, which would have had made him over 2,000 years old, twice the age of Methuselah, over twice the age of Methuselah, who was the oldest man who ever lived. But that Abraham had seen his day and rejoiced in his day. The opposers of the gospel of Christ love to twist and distort truth, just like their father, the devil. And Jesus responds to their great willful misunderstanding and misinterpretation of his claims. He says again, Truly, truly, in other words, don't miss this. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. By calling himself, I am, Jesus picks up a theme from the Old Testament. When Moses, and most of you know this story, I want you to hear, this is very important. This is, remember what I said. I said this in the past, what separates Christianity... (laughs) from all the religions of the world, is this. 
There's a couple of things, but one of the main things is Jesus is God. All the other religions of the world deny his divinity. So this is a good proof text when you're talking to maybe a Jehovah Witness or Mormons to explain this text to them and let them, and God willing, their eyes will be opened and see that they are um, believing a wrong um, heretical teaching. So when Moses was called to be Israel's deliverer, God appeared to him in a burning bush. And God told Moses that he would go to Pharaoh of Egypt and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Most of us remember that. And in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, can we get that? Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Jesus is saying, this is what Jesus is saying in back to John 8.58. This is what Jesus is saying. I am Yahweh, God of the Old Testament. And there are seven I am statements of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. He says, and you'll remember, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Notice all seven statements have nouns describing that, that uh, describing I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, etc. But here, in John 8.58, the I am stands alone, reverberating God's divine name given in Exodus. Jesus is not just saying, I existed before Abraham. He's not saying that. He's saying, I always existed. Little Kittle's theological dictionary of the New Testament describes egoimi. Egoimi is the Greek word for I am. Um, he des- he, they describe it like this, as a self-designation of Jesus. And stands in contrast to Abraham who didn't always exist. Jesus thus claims eternity. As he is equal to the Father, what is ascribed to the Father is attributed to him too. He's saying the Father and the Son are completely equal. Kenneth Wiest, the Greek scholar, expanded translation of the New Testament, interprets verse 58 like this. Most assuredly, I, I am saying to you, before, before Abraham came into existence, I am. In other words, we could say it like this. Before Abraham came into existence, Jesus always existed. This is what they call an incommunicable attribute of God's character called eternity. That God had no beginning and he had no end. Jesus, therefore, is without a doubt claiming to be God and nothing less than God. And that's why only he can make such astounding promises that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, I'm well aware that there are Christians who accept those who call themselves Christians but deny the deity of Christ. If anyone denies the deity of Christ, like I said before, they are not Christians. And there is no true fellowship with them. Just two days ago, I was speaking to someone who said there are many groups speaking about Jesus. And he conveyed the idea that all who speak about Jesus are Christians. He proceeded to say that he went to a Jehovah's Witness meeting and they were preaching Jesus just like any other Christian church. 
He said he couldn't tell the difference. It was exactly the same. And I told him, they are not speaking about the biblical Jesus. My wife and I went to dinner a couple of years ago with a couple. And as we were eating dinner, we were conversing on the subject of, a, of a, and, and what came up was a TV evangelist um, who they admired. And actually, uh, my wife and I, and I think Brian, even Brian and Terry, used to uh, support this ministry until we found out the heretical doctrines that she held to. So as we were eating dinner, my wife says to them, oh, John has a problem with her. Thank you, Kim, because that led me into a, a full discussion, you know, which I really wasn't up for. I was eating and, you know, like whatever I was eating went down in one lump because I knew it was going to turn into this big whole thing. And, and it did. It did. So I proceeded to tell them that this TV evangelist holds to the false doctrine that Christ didn't finish the atonement on the cross, but in hell. That was one of the uh, false doctrines that she held to. I also told him that uh, I, I, I was concerned that she may not have believed that Jesus was God when he walked on the earth. Which I found out later that she claimed, and I read this myself, um, when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, that he ceased to be God. I, she, she actually, this ministry actually believes that. That when Jesus said it is finished, he ceased to be God. I don't know how God can cease to be God, but that's what, what she says. Um, the husband didn't seem to have a problem with that. And later told my wife, he had called up my wife, and he said the Lord spoke to him, and said that, meaning me, that I was too concerned about less important things. If Christ's divinity is less important, then I'm reading the wrong Bible. It is not only important, it is necessary. The husband of that couple also said that God was going to use Mormons to spread the gospel around the world. That was on the heels of Mitt Romney when um, Joel Osteen was saying he thinks he's a Christian because he's talking about Jesus. People are confused. People are confused. I must be missing something. Uh, and I, I just don't know what Bible they're reading. I find it absolutely amazing that so many so-called Christians can read the scriptures and say Jesus never claimed to be God. How did the Jews understand it? How did the Jews understand it? When he said, I am in verse 59, what did they do? In verse 59, put that up there, please. Well, let me read it. <laughs> 59, okay, so he says they picked up stones, don't miss this, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they considered his claim blasphemy according to Leviticus 24, 16. They were trying to stone him, they were not trying to stone him for adultery, which is another form of, 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 of wrong, you know, heretical um, doctrine, or not, not doctrine, but an act that they, they can get stoned for. But they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. We see in John 5.18, the Jews sought to kill Jesus because he made himself equal with God. There was no mistake in the Jewish mind of who Jesus claimed to be. And there was no mistake with the demons. Demons. They understood who Jesus was. They would often say, we know who you are, Jesus, the, the Holy One of God. 
They know who he was. The demons have a more correct theology than some who claim to be Christians who deny his deity. Lastly, when the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, verse 59 says, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And two things briefly. The first reason they didn't succeed in stoning him is simple. His hour had still not come. He was on his father's divine table for his crucifixion. And no one was going to take his life until that time had come. And uh, number two, I believe the second reason is why um, um, Jesus left is when a person continues to reject Jesus, eventually he leaves. A continual a rejection of the Spirit calling for salvation may eventually leave, make the Spirit leave. So the Jews, number one, opposed and did not honor Jesus and thus dishonored God. Number two, they rejected his proposition to keep his word so they, ha- so they can have eternal life instead of death. And number three, they denied his declaration of being the eternal I am. Listen carefully. None of us have to die spiritually. Jesus, who made these promises to us today in the 21st century, is God. If you trust in Jesus Believe he is God. Keep his word. You'll never experience spiritual death. You'll never be separated from God eternally. But what about those who are genuine Christians? Even though we do not oppose God. We answer the call of salvation by his divine grace. We keep his word and we know we have eternal life. We believe with all our hearts Jesus is Lord and God. Right? Can we still oppose him and not keep his word? I believe we can at times in our Christian walk oppose and fail to keep his word. When we were first saved, we did not automatically perfectly obey God. When I first became a Christian, I I still abused drinking for about eight months. In one sense, I was opposing God by not keeping his word. Do not be drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18. Finally, I cried out to God and he delivered me from the alcohol and I began to obey his word in this particular area of my life. I stopped justifying it. Christians can justify sin, right? We can justify sin and and, and thus we're opposing God and his word. The good news is this. Here's the good news. Christ is committed to those who belong to him. You belong to Jesus Christ. He He is absolutely committed to you. He's constantly, and Brian always hammers this point down so beautifully. He's constantly, constantly sanctifying our hearts. He does what he has to do concerning remaining sin in our lives, even though we have been forgiven for past, present, and future sins. The sanctifying work will not cease until we are glorified. And if you don't know him tonight, stop opposing him. Trust him. Keep his word and experience eternal life. If you do know him, grow in obedience to him. And you'll be keeping his word more and more. And experiencing a greater, greater love for Christ and a greater peace in your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that while we were yet sinners, you didn't reject us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. When we were shaking our fists at you, You came to us with the gospel. No religion does that. No religion does that. Only Christianity. Because it has at the center of Christianity the great eternal I am who loves lost sinners. So we thank you God. 
that you challenged us tonight with your word. You challenged us that if we keep your word, we'll never see death. You challenged us that you are the great eternal I am. And we put our trust in you. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.